from Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Mason Porter will join us to discuss applied mathematics. In addition, Dr. Beth Ann Ditkoff will join us to discuss how our bodies work. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000, and the world famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Grok Science Show. Science Show. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Mason Porter. <laughs> it's pretty awesome that Mason's back again. Yeah, I feel I feel a bit rusty, but um, I can always sound stupid. I don't need that much practice to do it. <laughs> I've been practicing my whole life. So it's essentially Grox around the world today. Yeah, so we're only on two continents, though. See, we could have, if we did this last week, we could have been on three continents. Yeah, so Mason, you're typically at Oxford nowadays, right? I'm in Oxford usually nowadays. Right now, although I am at Caltech physically at the moment, it's reporting from our old stomping grounds while nobody else is around here. So I'm sure if I look around closely enough, I'll find some. Every time I do this show, I'm at a different institution. And can we call you professor now? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm, I'm more of an assistant professor. They use the term university lecturer. But one of these days, I'll be a real professor. For some reason in the UK, you can't use the, If you use the word professor, it means you actually are already officially have the professor status. So it's a bit different than in, than in the US. But if you say professor, it, it officially means full professor. And otherwise, you're supposed to say doctor. Whereas in the US, if you say professor, it means anybody who's on that track. So then I have a faculty job and I have grad students and I'm writing too many grant proposals. And... Uh, so fill all the listeners in. How's the world of mathematics at Oxford? Um, I mean, there's certain things I'm enjoying. I mean, like being in Oxford is very cool. Lots of smart people, lots of things to do. So I'm in the applied math group with them in the math department. In the UK, it's normally split up in two departments, but not for us. Applied math is a little bit different in the UK. It's a lot more, it's a lot more physical applied mathematics. So a lot, a lot of people in our group would actually not be in math departments in the US. So there's a lot of fluid mechanics. And then on my end, I'm continuing doing things with some, a little bit with chaos, a lot more with nonlinear waves in various contexts and with some more networks. No more articles in PNAS yet. I got one three years ago, so, but maybe I'll be able to contribute to your favorite journal eventually. But yeah, networks and waves, nonlinear waves, some chaos. Um, so the, wa the wave stuff, so there's a couple different things. Some stuff with, with atomic physics, with Bose-Einstein condensates, but a lot more lately with granular materials. So imagine that you have a chain of beads and that you confine them so that they're in one dimension. So you don't want them to jiggle to the left and right, say. And you hit them and you see what the properties of the waves um, propagating through are. And then especially you do that when you consider heterogeneity. So for example, if you alternated soft beads and, and light beads. So force is basically going to transfer between these things when they're squishing each other. And so you, you get some interesting nonlinear behavior there. You can actually, in some cases, describe the solutions analytically. What's called pre-compression, if you put these things in a clamp, so like, you know, like in the Three Stooges when you put Curly's head in a clamp, you can actually um, get some band gaps and get different types of waves that way. But no one's head's being put in the clamp. No one's getting harmed while we're doing this, even though one of the setups with that did actually explode once for reasons I don't understand. 
but no one got hurt. Anyway, so you can get different um, wave propagation properties, and some types of waves will just actually not propagate, but will just be supported in a, in a localized fashion, and will just stay there. And you can examine the stability of these various waves under um, in different frequency ranges and things like that. So there are various projects related to that that we're working on. We've been looking at, say, randomized arrangements of, of beads, and you can actually start looking at things using some statistical mechanics that way. So actually, one of the things I was doing this week back at Caltech, because uh, my experimental collaborators are, are here, is to try to figure out how to write a paper on, on these randomized chains. We're treating these, um, we're treating these as if they were sort of spins comes to the, to the theory. So imagine that you have a, a chain of dimers. So say a steel bead and an aluminum bead is the current type of dimer we're doing. So that's a type of tile, right? And you could imagine having either steel first and aluminum second, or aluminum first and steel second. And in the first case, you can call that the up arrow, the up spin. And the second one you call the down spin. And then you can arrange these consecutively in a one-dimensional configuration. Say you have a certain probability of pointing in the upspin, right? And so if the probability is different, that's going to reflect how heterogeneous it is. And so you have a bunch of different realizations for each given probability, and then you can average over those and see how well waves propagate. Like, see, look at the maximum force that you get at the bottom of the chain, and you actually find um, a transition, and we're trying to explore that in some detail, trying to figure out precisely what the scalings are. So just like you would with these abstract spin systems in, in, in physics and spin glass models, and just to try to look at these quote-unquote elastic spins, just sort of a new, a new way to look at elastic media, at least at least heterogeneous ones. Other projects related to that as well. This, this, these are nice tabletop experiments. Um, so if you've heard of Newton's Cradle, it's sort of a realization of, of stuff like that. And then um, the model that comes into play mathematically is a bunch of ordinary differential equations which are related to a famous model from 50 years ago by Fermi, Pasta, and Ulam has slightly different potential. Nonlinear science as a field in many ways actually came from that study. So this is partly going back to some very old studied problems but with a new twist that actually gives you the, the closest experimental version of that model that has been done so far. I like it anyway. It's tabletop, you know, it's one of those things that makes me feel like I could even have my own laboratory. But it's, 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 very, it's very cool because you can just, it's very intuitive, right? You, just, you know, it's, it's the stuff we played with as kids, right? You put a bunch of beats together and you hit it and you see what happens. I mean, fundamentally, that's what's going on. And then you try to choose configurations in a good manner so that you can actually build up basic physical understanding. And then th eventually there could be some applications as well. So, for example, suppose you wanted to find the arrangement that minimize the force at the end, then you could have potentially a very light shock absorber if you use good material. So that would be sort of a three-dimensional version of it. Or even in one dimension, imagine you want a nice actuator in the following sense. So, you know, if you go to the market and you want to know if a watermelon is ripe, you might knock on it and you might want to try to, you know, you might want to make sure that there's a good sound. But to really do that in a controlled fashion, you have to understand sort of the properties of the knocking really well. So one of these one-dimensional things, you could imagine being that type of actuator that it would knock on something and it would try to see if it has defects. And so my collaborators, my experimental collaborators, actually have a patent to do this. And so by studying, trying to study the exact properties in these one-dimensional settings where you can actually do some analytics and, and really get into detail, that could actually have some practical applications, even this, even this one-dimensional case. So it's really neat to have this confluence of not just basic physics and, ba and, and some mathematics, but to also something that really might be useful. So this would be my first ever useful project in that sense, if, if it works out that way. Most of my projects just do basic understanding, 
which is very cool, but it's also nice to, it'll be nice if there's actually practical stuff too. Did you, did you get to hang out with uh, Stephen Hawking's? I do not get to hang out with Stephen Hawking because he, I mean, let me pronounce this correctly, he is at Cambridge rather than at Oxford. No, he's an Oxford alum though. We're supposed to say Cambridge with a certain bit of disdain. So Cambridge is not the correct pronunciation, whereas Cambridge is the correct pronunciation. I don't know if you can if the difference comes out on radio or not, but um, one has a pronunciation with disdain and one has a pronunciation without disdain. And it's really weird because when I was at Tech, right, I mean, MIT was our rivals. So it's like whoever's living in Cambridge has been in my, my enemy no matter what, right? I mean, it's, it's strange. But uh, I, I have not met him. He did one time, well, I mean, one time I was at the Tech, he was our dinner guest. Uh, I have run into um, Roger Penrose a couple times. He's a colleague in my department. And I believe that Hawking is not only an alum of Oxford, but is in fact an alum of our department. Then he left and joined the enemy. I have not seen Richard Dawkins around, but I'm starting um, a collaborative project with his ex-wife. So I guess that's the closest I get to him. You know, so we have um, we have colleges which are the, the Caltech houses are were sort of modeled after those. Our two most I'm in Somerville College, which is the only college named after a mathematician, named after Mary Somerville, who was more of an expository mathematician. She translated Laplace at some point, had some role, very minor role, I think, in the discovery of Neptune in terms of predicting its existence before it was found. We have a couple of famous alums. Our two most famous alums from Somerville were both prime ministers. One was Margaret Thatcher, and the other was Indira Gandhi. So we have both ends of the spectrum. And we have one Nobel laureate, who is Dorothy Hodgkins, who is not the Hodgkins from Hodgkins and Huxley. And we have some other you know, famous alums who are like in, in Parliament. Uh, so this used to be an all-women's college until, until 1994, when they started accepting men. And so nearly all of our famous alums are, are women. And on occasion, I've gone into one of our fancy rooms, because it's a cushy job in some sense. They, lots of free food and stuff, you know, it's sort of a grad student's dream. And I mean, one time I, I walked in there on a Sunday, and I was in, and like, one person who I know is like, Mason, you're going to meet Baroness Shirley Williams. It's like, and she was one of the, one of the so-called gang of four from the early 80s in terms of the um, political shenanigans in, in the UK. So, you know, sometimes these people are just randomly there get to meet them occasionally and then you get you know you meet them and then you look them up on wikipedia to see who they really are so you learn a lot so i okay so i twisted your question a bit but um yeah i haven't actually met stephen hawking but occasionally i run into some other famous people and our department has a few well-known people i guess roger penrose is the best known one as i mentioned yeah and stay tuned for next week where the guest will surely be better than i was Full disclosure, it's very, very important in science. Full disclosure. And if I didn't completely ruin my career, you can contact me and I'll be happy to talk to you. Maybe you'll have a job to offer me. All right, well, that was our very good friend, Professor Mason Porter from Oxford University, discussing the very fascinating developments in applied mathematics research. This is the Grok Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Dr. Beth Ann Ditkoff will join us to discuss how our bodies work. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. 
Well, the human body is a remarkable feat of engineering, honed through thousands of years of evolution by natural selection. The various quirks of our bodies often go unnoticed as we age, but to a child, the questions can be endless, and often providing the answers may stump most adults. Well, joins today on the Grox Science Show to discuss this fascinating world of our bodies is Dr. Beth Ann Ditkoff. Dr. Ditkoff has penned the new book, Why Don't Your Eyelashes Grow? Curious Questions Kids Ask About the Human Body, which seeks to answer some of the most vexing questions about our bodies for a general audience. Dr. Ditkoff, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, Well, it's certainly our pleasure, and uh, I think this is really a very fascinating book, Why Don't Your uh, Eyelashes Grow? I'm curious, how did you decide to come about writing this book? Well, because I'm a physician, you know, many people stop me in the street and they ask me all sorts of questions, everything from very serious topics to like brain tumors to not very serious problems like an ingrown toenail. And because I'm a physician and children ask so many questions, my own daughters often ask me medical questions. And one day my husband overheard the girls asking me a question, why don't your eyelashes grow? Obviously you get your hair cut every so often, but you never have to trim your eyelashes. And so I was answering that question for them, and my husband came up with the idea of why not write a book about all the medical questions that children ask. And my daughters provided all of the questions, and then I provided all of the answers. Uh, did many of the questions that they provide, uh, you've also heard quite frequently from your patients as well? Well, not so much from my patients because the book is really organized and oriented towards children. But what happened is once my children started asking these questions and their friends got involved and their cousins got involved and everybody started asking questions, it's really a fun book for families to read because most adults don't know the answers to these questions too. So it has a very lighthearted tone. Indeed, indeed. Uh, I, I'm sure you had many more questions that you could put in the book. How did you choose the questions that actually were included? Well, we came up with a whole list of questions, and then the editor edited some of them out. We had originally some very serious questions, like um, what is cancer, what is AIDS? But we decided to take those sorts of questions out because we really thought we wanted to keep it a lighthearted tone. And then what we did from there was organize them into different sections. So the first section is called Your Body 101, and that's all the weird things that happen to your body, like why do you have earwax and why don't your eyelids? lashes grow. And then the second category is the weird, the ugly, and the downright gross. And those are really disgusting things that people want to know about poop and farts and everything else. And then the next section is body afflictions and everyday strange things that can happen. And those are some common questions that most children ask about getting sunburned or food allergies, you know, some basic stuff like that. And then my favorite section is the urban myth and what if. And those are all questions. Those are all things that mothers tell their children, like, don't crack your knuckles. It will give you arthritis and all those sorts of things. And we debunked all those myths. Most of them are just old wives' tales. And then the last was bonus body trivia. And those are just multiple choice sort of answers. How much does your brain weigh? How many bones are in your body? That kind of thing. And so once we had questions, we tried to organize them into those categories. And it really just grew from there. Well, it really is, uh, I think, a very uh, complete uh, set of questions and really a, a lot of very interesting topics. I'm curious maybe about some of those urban myths. Can you crack your knuckles? Is it bad for you? Well, the 
the way you crack your knuckles is each joint is composed of two bones that oppose each other, and the outside of the joint is composed of ligaments and muscles to hold the bones in place, and the whole thing is lubricated with synovial fluid. And the way to think about that fluid is it's similar to the oil or the grease that's used in the car to lubricate the pistons. And if you bend your knuckle in an odd way, like back when it should just go forward, what you can do is you can force the fluid to pass rapidly through that joint space and cause a bubble, and that's what causes the crack. So they've never been able to link that bubble passing through with arthritis, but it's just an extremely annoying habit if you have kids who do it, so I would recommend not. Uh, I'm actually curious about the uh, titular question of the book, uh, why don't your eyelashes grow? So your eyelashes do grow, it's just they grow on a different cycle than the hair on your head. So the hair on your head and your eyelash hair go through a cycle where they grow for a period of time, then they transition to a resting phase, and then they fall out, and then the whole thing starts again. So for the hair on your head, that growth cycle takes many years to complete, so you can really appreciate the hair as it grows every month. But for your eyelash hair, that growth cycle is very short. It's only a matter of a few months. So although the eyelash hair is growing, it's almost imperceptible because by the time the few months have passed, that eyelash falls out and a new one grows. And obviously each hair is on its own individual cycle, otherwise all the hair on your head would fall out simultaneously. I see. And so what leads to actually the differences in the uh, time uh, scale of hair growth? That's just how it works. The hair on your head is very long. The hair on your eyelashes is very short. Hmm. Uh, Maybe a related question, that is why do toenails grow slower than the fingernails? Right, so there's many theories for that, but the most common theory is that your nails grow in response to trauma. So we know, for example, that people who bite their nails, which is an unconscious habit, those nails tend to grow faster than people who don't bite their nails. So in other words, it's the day-to-day trauma of just moving your hands around that cause the nails to grow faster in your fingers than in your toes, where those nails are covered by shoes. Hmm. Uh, I'm curious, what is the uh, most common question uh, you've actually heard? Oh, there's just lots and lots. You know, most of them are, the most common ones are the um, the old wives' tales. So, for example, what happens if you swallow gum? The old wives' tale is that it's hitching in your stomach for seven years. It takes seven years to digest. But, in fact, that's not true. The gum is indigested by your body. It just usually passes out in your bowel movement within 24 hours. Same kind of thing when they ask you, you know, what happens if you swallow a watermelon seed? Does it stay in your stomach and grow a watermelon? No, it's not digested by the body. It just passes through. Uh, I'm curious, what's actually your favorite question in the book? My favorite question is, why does blonde hair turn green in the pool? Because most people think that the answer is definitely chlorine, but it's not. It's, it's the copper that's in the pool. And the copper gets into the pool through the metal pipes and also through some of the chemicals used to treat and clean the pool. And that copper residue gets absorbed onto the hair shaft, and it shows up as green. It's obviously more easily seen in blonde people, but in brunettes and redheads as well, you can get that greenish residue. And the way to prevent that from happening is to, as soon as you get out of the pool, rinse your hair thoroughly. Don't allow that copper residue to dry on your hair because then it can build up. And there's also special swimming shampoo that's available in all the drugstores now, which can also help just cleanse it of that copper residue. 
But that's my personal favorite question. My older daughter, Andrea, her favorite question is, how can you wiggle your ears? And she likes that question because she's actually able to wiggle her ears. And we think that it's genetic, meaning her grandfather can wiggle his ear and her great uncle can wiggle his ear. And so that passes down. But you can actually learn to wiggle your ear. It's just very hard to do. Your ear is controlled by the auricular muscles. Auricular means ear. So in back of your ear and on top of your ear. So that's the auricularis posterior and the auricularis superior. And the way to learn how to wiggle your ear is to just move your face so yawn or chew or puff out your cheeks and while you're holding those muscles in back of your ear and then you can learn what makes the move and then you can try and duplicate that action but it's very hard to do if you don't have a genetic predisposition towards it Mm, I see. I, I'm curious, uh, does uh, your other daughter also have a favorite question? Yes, her favorite question that she came up with is why don't human beings have tails? And to explain that when the fetus is developing, they actually do have a tail up until the eighth week of gestation, and then that tail involutes, so obviously the baby is not born with a tail. And some of the theories for that is, for example, monkeys need to have a tail because they need that tail to balance while they're climbing around in trees. But since humans walk upright, a tail would really throw them off balance, and there's no need for one, and that's why they probably involute during gestation. But that's her favorite question. And you can feel what's left of your tail. That's your tailbone, which is the coccyx, which is the Greek word for cuckoo. And it's called that because the coccyx is triangular-shaped like a cuckoo's beak. And when you sit, you know, the way to explain it to a child is when you sit cross-legged or, or like a pretzel, you can feel behind, just beneath the spinal cord, where that tailbone comes out, where it's, it's prominent. Uh, and certainly some people actually are born though, with something of a, a vestigial tail. That's extremely rare, and most of the time it's just a sac that's filled with fatty tissue. Very rarely it can actually be an extension of the spinal cord and have nerves and other important structures in it, and that obviously needs to be removed by a neurosurgeon, but that's extremely rare. Mm-hmm. So this book is obviously uh, written based on uh, children's questions, but certainly answers at least may not be known to most adults. Uh, do you find that a lot of adults are actually finding this book fascinating? Right. Well, that's why it's a fun book for families, because the questions, since they're written by children, appeal to children. But adults are constantly looking over their shoulder and wondering the answers to those questions, too. They're all just common, everyday questions. I mean, we really started with the top of our head and worked our way down to our feet and tried to figure out what are the most common questions that children ask. Uh, so there's one, uh, for example, does a, can a contact lens actually float into your brain? Right. So people who get contact lenses are scared of that. My older daughter, Andrea, wears one contact in her left eye, and that was the first thing that she asked when she went to the optician to be fitted for the contact. And most people think it can float away. But the eyelids are actually to the eye. So your contact can go towards the top or towards the bottom of your eye, but it can't float to the back of the eye because the eye is contained by the eyelids. So sometimes the contact can float around in your eye and you either have to feel around for it to look and find out which corner it's in, but it can't get lost in your brain. Well, that's good news. <laughs> yeah, very good news. The other question people always ask is if you put a pee up your nose, will it go into your brain? And the answer to that is no, because the nose is connected to the brain through the olfactory nerves, which are the smelling nerves, and the pee cannot travel through the nerves. 
but it can travel to the back of the uh, nose when it can get caught there or very rear and then down your windpipe and into your lungs and that would be a problem as well. As you mentioned, you do have a, a section on urban myths. What are the ones that uh, in that section that you actually found very fascinating? Oh, the, the one that I tell my children every day, wear your coat, it's the winter, you're going to catch a cold. But actually there's no medical proof of that. Colds are caused by a virus, and you can't catch a virus by not wearing your coat. Although it makes common sense that you should wear your coat because otherwise you'll feel cold and uncomfortable. And certainly if you go out with a wet head, it's not going to cause you to catch a cold, but your hair can freeze and it can break off. So even though my children know the answer that they're not going to get a cold, I still tell them out of common sense that they definitely need to wear their coats. Probably best not to put undue stress on your body anyway. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Sure, you got a lot of questions from your kids. Uh, Were you stumped by any of those the first time you heard them? Yeah, there were many of them that I was stumped and that I had to look up. And the way that I did that research was to use Medline, which is a compiled source of all medical journals, to look through and see if I could find the answers. And then also basic standard medical textbooks, because many of these questions are just never covered in medical school because they're just sort of common everyday problems. They're not diseases or pathogens. And so it really, some of it required quite a bit of research to come up with the answers. Uh, What was the toughest one uh, finding the answer for? See, there were definitely some tough ones. Some of the more technical ones, like why are mosquitoes attracted to certain people? I did not know the answer to that, and that required a lot of research. Mosquitoes are attracted by smell. You put out, um, as you breathe in the oxygen, you breathe out gases which can have an odor, and mosquitoes are attracted to that. They also look for movement, and they like heat. So if a person is warm, or if which attracts the heat, then the mosquito is more likely to want to bite that person. But other things I truly didn't know the answer to, if you eat more carrots, will you see better? And the answer to that is no, carrots contain a vitamin A, and vitamin A is absolutely essential to your vision health. In developing countries, it's the leading cause of blindness in children is vitamin A deficiency. But in this country, fortunately, we don't have that problem. And if you eat more carrots, it won't help your vision anymore. So you need to stick with your glasses. Most of the time when you need to wear glasses, it has to do with the shape of the front of the eye, the lens of the eye, the cornea, and these things can't be altered by eating more vitamin A. Uh, Speaking of eating, uh, why do you get a headache if you eat ice cream too quickly? Right, so that was another one that required a lot of research. Some of these don't have answers, but they theories. And the most common theory to this question is that it causes a spasm, and it can actually cause pain and a headache to occur. And they've studied this in various groups. It's more common in children, and they've studied whether the brain freeze is so bad that the children won't eat ice cream, which is never the case. They will always eat ice cream. And really, you know, ways to get rid of it are just anecdotal. Uh, My children always say that they put their thumb to the roof of their mouth, and either that distracts them from the ice cream headache or it warms up the roof of their mouth and then prevents that vasospasm and causes um, vasodilatation to allow more blood flow. I'm sure you certainly have a lot of questions. Is there a plan for uh, another book? Yes, we are actually writing another book, and we're coming up with those questions slowly because we've answered so many in the first book. (laughs) We are running slightly out of time, though. Uh, Do you have any sort of final words uh, regarding uh, the whole issue of uh, your bodies and uh, maybe what you can learn from the book? Right, well, what we tried to do with the book was to answer them in terms that a child 
and understand. And many of the um, answers in the book actually contain things that you can figure out the answers to questions. For example, why does your heart beat faster? You could hear resting heart rate, and then you can do jumping jacks and see that the heart rate increases. And so they're interactive in terms of children participating in actively finding out these answers. So it was really encouraged uh, children to actually go look up the answers for themselves. Right, and to be interested in science and health and the human bodies. Well, it's always a good thing to do. And, uh, of course, the new book is called Why Don't Your Eyelashes Grow? Curious Questions Kids Ask About the uh, Human Body. Dr. Didkoff, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show today. Oh, thank you again for having me. I enjoyed talking to you. Well, certainly our pleasure. Thank you for your time. All right, bye-bye. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For the Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.